welcome to episode four of What Kind of Country? I'm Victoria Meakin, and I'm moving with my family to the beautiful country of New Zealand. It's 2021, and the world is still in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic. So myself, my husband, and our two young children are governed by New Zealand's very strict managed isolation rules, meaning we'll be spending two weeks in a government-mandated hotel. And I'm delighted to say that I'll be dedicating part of that time to speaking remotely to some very generous Kiwis who've given up their time to help me answer the question, in 2021, what kind of country are we moving to? Coming up in this episode, New Zealand waits for the latest news on when its lockdown may ease. And I speak to a farming and agriculture advocate about the country's primary industries. So we're still ticking off the days in managed isolation in Christchurch. We're tuning into New Zealand radio and TV news programmes on a daily basis and are today waiting for a 3pm government announcement on whether parts of the country may shift down one level to a slightly less stringent lockdown. Opinions divided on whether that will happen now or in three or four days' time, so we shall see. My guest today is, to put it mildly, a multi-talented lady. Between running a successful video and radio studio in Canterbury and advocating for and commentating on New Zealand's agriculture industry on the radio airwaves and her hugely popular Sarah's Country radio show and podcast, Businesswoman and presenter Sarah Perriam doesn't seem to let the dust settle. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for talking to me today. It's very bizarre when you're used to introing other people and then you hear how someone describes you. Thanks, Victoria. How was it? How was it? Was that okay? (laughs) I think you overinflated how I think about myself, but I'm okay with it. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm happy to give you a boost during uh, level four lockdown, you know, but it uh, hopefully uh, gave you a bit of a vitamin um, injection to start the day. How is lockdown going for you? Um, Well, I mean, in comparison to your situation, we have, um, you know, the freedom to be able to go for some beautiful walks around the wetlands in Lincoln and uh, enjoy some little tiny parts of freedom. So it's not bad at all. I mean, in comparison to people around the world, it is not bad. I mean, we're in a beautiful country. Excellent. Oh, that's good to hear. Well, I'm going to actually move on to this beautiful country before we talk about your specialist knowledge and uh, and the sector that you tend to work in most of the time, because I'm going to start every podcast episode of this series uh, by asking my interviewees three questions for me, basically, that might help me as a newcomer to get the best out of New Zealand. So can I ask you, Sarah, what is your favourite New Zealand beach? Oh, definitely in Golden Bay. Um, My father's owned a camping ground up there for nearly 16 years. Uh, Golden Bay, I couldn't pick particular beaches, but majority of them, like Totranui, is incredible, Golden Sands. Um, But yeah, hands down, anywhere in Golden Bay. I think that there is a theme developing uh, with uh, some of the answers to this question. You know, it's very interesting, but Golden Bay has, has come up more than once already. I'm not surprised, but Am yes, I allowed one more? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. My, my sister and her um, fiancé recently moved from Wanaka to Waihi Beach because Wanaka's become crazy busy and not the town that we grew up loving anymore. And so and Waihi Beach is, oh, incredible, beautiful mm-hmm. part of the world. 
as well. Waihi Beach. And wh- whereabouts is that exactly? It's the bottom of the Coromandel, so it's not very far away from Tauranga. And I'm interested, what is the deal with Wanaka? How has it changed so much? Well, I mean, we grew up in Cromwell, and Wanaka's its neighbour, and it was... You knew everybody when you walked down the street. It's, it was quintessential holiday homes of Otago and Southland people from Dunedin or Invercargill that would flock there. And in the shoulder seasons were very distinct. Um, mm-hmm. You could tell it would drop off. Now it's become a little mini Queenstown. And it still has its beautiful essence of its community. And, I mean, there'll be people listening to this that will be like, Sarah, don't bag Wanaka, because <laughs> you go there for the Wanaka AMP show in March and it feels like the way life used to be with that community. But um, it's just very, very different. And the explosion has, you know, when you've... It's different if you've just moved there. Wanaka's amazing. If you yeah. grew up there, you only know what you, you used to grow up with. So... Sure, absolutely, I get that. Victim would be the wrong word because I know that you're not trying to sort of put a negative spin on it, but I can't think of a better one, a bit of a victim of its own success, really, because it is such a stunning and beautiful place to visit. So uh, hence its popularity and the way it's changed over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And the same's happened here in Lincoln, but uh, I love Lincoln for the fact that it doesn't have the tinges of the tourist change to it you you talk to old Lincoln locals and they think it's been ruined and it's growing too fast whereas we've just moved here and we think it's amazing because it's got all the attributes we're looking for in our time in our life Um, whereas down in Wanaka and Cromwell it's sort of become an area of people relocating from Auckland and you know don't have that deep rich heritage of connection to the land um, and that can be quite hard to live with when you've been there for our family's been the area six generations so it changes. I wonder if uh, your answer to my next question will uh, be geographically in that area as well then. I wondered if you could recommend to me where in New Zealand I should take my young family camping. Oh yes. It would be, but for me, I'm really exploring Canterbury as a whole. Like, we're talking from the lakes in Tekapo and Twizel through to um, North Canterbury into the hills and Arthur's Pass and out to Akaroa. And mm-hmm. so there's just so much scope, and I think it's probably because it's very new for me. But there's so much variety from bush through to sea and mountainscapes. But in terms of the places that we grew up with central otago hands down is absolutely gorgeous um kids bush near lake hawea the top of lake hawea is a very popular place to go camping that one i haven't heard of before so um that's uh, definitely going on the list as well so thank you i'm compiling a compendium of all these suggestions and they need more normal times it'd be very nice to start ticking them off i think that the catlins is very underrated as well great that's noted thank you one final question of these general questions sarah can you name one thing that you think every visitor to New Zealand should experience? I honestly believe in the theme of camping. It's the stillness on a summer's evening around a bonfire with friends and family, having a beer at the end of a summer's night and the stars of New Zealand. I don't think you can get that type of experience with no light pollution and just that 
the lateness that happens because we're at the bottom of the world. You know, it doesn't down south. It doesn't get late till ten o'clock at night. I mean, that's quite unique. Absolutely, I'm 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 picturing it now as well. That uh, that sounds wonderful. A brilliant suggestion. I love that one. Thank you. I'm going to move now to your area of expertise, Sarah. And most people with even a passing acquaintance with New Zealand would probably cite farming and agriculture as a significant industry in the country. But could I start by asking you a pretty general question? How important is this incredibly wide-ranging industry to New Zealand? From a historic heritage perspective, it is the industry this country was built on being the food of the South Pacific for the UK. Uh, Yet our innovation as a global leader in our systems of how we farm makes us more unique than what we produce Um, which is very underrated and I talk about you know agri-technology and our innovation and how we how we farm. We certainly have noticed that with the COVID lockdown and the lack of tourists coming to this country being on par with agriculture in terms of our export earnings but it's so much more to our national identity um, in multiple different ways. Feeding our country is only a small percentage of the output of the primary sector But there has been so many challenges that have popped up in the last five years from the urbanisation. We're one of the most highly urbanised countries in the world, Mm. um, yet we're such a sparse country. So that's come with its challenges and connection to that heritage, but the ongoing um, terms of trade that continues to be at record levels every year from our sector. When it comes to the many different types of farming in New Zealand, Geographically across the country, I know this might be asking you again to give a sort of pretty broad brush answer. Is there a general breakdown to what happens in each region? Well, the rise of dairy in the last 20 years has been very notable uh, and it has been because it's been considerably higher returns than sheep and beef farming. And so we've seen that dairy conversion happen uh, starting out in the Waikato and then moving down into Southland um, predominantly and also extensively in Canterbury as well. And that has changed and become one of our biggest, well, uh, it is our biggest primary sector export, um, the dairy sector. But we have also seen a huge swing in um, the conversion to horticulture in different areas around New Zealand, but predominantly the Bay of Plenty and, of course, viticulture through um, Marlborough and Nelson. So sheep and beef, we have dropped something from 70 million sheep back in the day to under 20 million sheep. So we have seen huge land use change, and that has been driven by economic return. Now we're seeing land use change being driven by environmental impact um, which is very positive and very welcomed by the sector to have effectively your our cake and eat it too if we can achieve that um, but what it is doing is it's creating a new approach and discussion around multi-land use on property so you might have a little bit of dairy a little bit of sheep and beef a little bit of horticulture but it fe- effectively we are going back to the way we used to farm 
in that we would have multiple different sources of revenue from different types of farming um, and growing. So it's changing, but also climate change is really affecting the different regions and what's growing in, in the different areas. Um, we see that predominantly, if we think about it from wine, you wouldn't think of having uh, Syrah or Chardonnay growing in central Otago, predominantly known for Pinot Noir. But because it's getting warmer, um, a lot of what we're growing in different regions is changing and people's um, eyes are being opened up to the possibility. There's a huge rise in sheep milking, which you'd think that New Zealand would have embraced being such a sheep nation. But we're starting to import huge amounts of genetics from uh, Europe. And that's great because we're able to convert non-performing dairy farms on an environmental standard across to a lighter footprint, but utilising the same infrastructure of milking. So hopefully that answered your question. We've become a very diverse food basket. When it comes to the progressive end of farming in New Zealand, is there a, a conflict when it comes to getting everybody on board? There certainly has been. At the turning point was in 2012 and Fishing Game launched what they called the Dirty Dairying Campaign. And dairying expansion across New Zealand happened very rapidly. Um, to note under a Labour government when they made an act change and fo formed Fonterra at the time. So there has been a rising contention between the you need us we're the backbone of the economy type um, narrative which i personally in my broadcasting hate and detest to move towards more what i would like a more open-minded and open-hearted discussion with all stakeholders around uh, what we now talk about a lot is catchments the catchment of water from the mountain to the sea and all of the different stakeholders that are involved in that water supply and everyone has a right to to fresh water quality to be able to swim and there has been a huge amount of emphasis on it being the farmer's fault um, and you can imagine the mental health of farmers and the effect of being blamed for something that technically and scientifically is very hard to have an, a discussion about so some headlines have grabbed and driven the conversation uh, and farmers have been trying to have scientifically in-depth conversations back and that's mm -hmm. where the tensions lie. But more so too also that on we've seen two elections that have had a narrative around this and that has created global headlines. And every time that happens, it also does affect our market access or in the perception of particularly our sensitive markets like like Europe, look at it and say, well, what's going on with your country? You say this, but we see this. So, so Sarah, could you give me an example of that, that narrative sort of uh, politically that's been going on? One of them in particular I remember was um, a venison company selling into France and they say, well, you know, you must have the dirtiest waterways in the world. And if you've seen the shot over river in Queenstown and the Waimakariri in Canterbury, the huge volumes of pretty glacial, beautiful blue water. And so the shock factor has come from, but your government has, is saying this. And mm. so it is, it is something that we're managing on a day-to-day -day basis. We have a we say a pasture-raised advantage. We talk about our grass-fed beef and lamb and dairy. Yet in through our European markets, they can say, well, that's cruel. You leave it, your animals outside. We see Jeremy Clarkson and Clarkson's farm saying New Zealand's undermining the UK, yet UK farmers farm with 60% of the income coming from subsidies from the government. New mm. Zealand farmers have no subsidies. So it's a very interesting time to get across fact in a discussion that so broadly affects so many people. Sarah, 
when I talk to you about this subject, your absolute passion for it obviously shines out and does so every day on the airwaves and in all of your other work. But could I just turn the spotlight directly on you for a moment and ask you, where did this all begin for you? Why the passion for farming and agriculture? Well, I mean, the story certainly started with my uncle John, who was the sheep farmers weren't getting good prices for their wool. And so he went direct to market to Laura Piano in Italy and established the relationship between farmer and the mill, um, which went into high super fine merino jackets and started the New Zealand Merino Company, of, of which is born um, the likes of Icebreaker and, and Allbirds and, and that, that have come out of that. So that whole telling our story better connection to market is where that my passion started for it. Mm-hmm. And then as I led into actually broadcasting, I felt that having a voice to represent those who don't have a voice is such a powerful job that you can do. Um, when you can have a place of neutrality on that because so many in our industry can't say what they want to say because of the positions that they're in. Mm -hmm. And so that's how important journalism is um, to an ever-changing world and not necessarily representative of an entirety but of a minority within the farming sector that don't get a voice because there is a vocal a minority as well that, yes. that are very defensive. And so, yeah, and I found that when I went to MediaWorks and it was the 2017 election, yes. six weeks into that election, I was thrust onto the AM show every Friday to represent the sector. I'd never been um, to broadcasting school. Being on air was new for me. I was mm-hmm. used to being producing behind the scenes. And I remember going home to my apartment and crying to my dad while it was bucketing with rain and Auckland has 1200 mils of rain and the government mm. was suggesting that they tax water usage and I grew up in central Otago where water was survival to us we had about 300 mils of rain mm-hmm. and and I had farmers ringing me crying about it and dad said look the prime minister can't do anything about this how do you believe you're actually going to do anything about it and I learned at that turning point that the way I could do anything about it was firstly to harness my emotions and that's why I try and tell farming community all the time you're so intrinsically involved in this because you live on your farm your community is um, the industry that you choose to socialize with it is your everything it's your intergenerational goal um, and legacy so when you're so emotionally attached to what they're saying about something that you do. It's really, really hard to learn how to do that and harness the emotions. So I found that that was how I could contribute and what drives me. Perhaps moving on from that and talking about the way the message message can get out, I've heard you on your podcast talking about New Zealand open farms and uh, you, you talk quite fervently about you know how important it was that uh, people got involved in that. I think the next event is 2022 but what is that and why is it important it's actually a uk idea believe it or not and we've adopted it here in new zealand and they have considerable more people go through the farms than we do here in new zealand but that's a population thing but the thing is is that you look at um, someone's understanding on a topic and if you show them or tell them something they're never going to grasp that knowledge as much as experience and so open farms is a way of one weekend per year 
farms across New Zealand in a variety. This is from market gardens to um, sheep farms, dairy farms, sheep milking, orchards, you name it, the variety. Mm. Uh, families can take their children along to experience and ask questions. And it's got such a huge flow-on effect because um, you can have the 25-year-old um, vegan ask the shearer who's shearing the sheep, you know, so you don't have to kill the sheep to get the wool. Mm-hmm. Because that's what my friends tell me, that that's why they don't wear wool, one of the most world's most natural sustainable fibres. So it can just completely shift conversations and have a ripple effect. So I'm hugely passionate about it and I wish we could do it more than once a year and I wish we could have more farms involved because the demand from people wanting to go on farms is higher than the farms we're opening up. The reason for that is driven by huge health and safety regulations and also activism that's happening um, all the time around farms. No wonder farmers are very cautious about letting people onto their farms to take photos and videos, but that hasn't been the case. It's proven that that has not been the case at all. Can I move on, Sarah, to you and your media company, which I know is intrinsically sort of linked to everything else we've been talking about today, but Perium Media and uh, all, all the activities that happen under that umbrella, what was the inspiration behind forming your own media company? Prior to being on air as a broadcaster, I worked with my former partner, Tony, who was producing uh, television programming for Country TV on Sky at the time. And so I learned to shoot and edit and direct. um, And we did a lot of TV programming where we traveled around the country in this big, large green caravan. We did that for three years. And so that was effectively, do I say, my bread and butter prior to going into broadcasting. Yes. Um, and always has been. And then uh, relocating from MediaWorks in Auckland down to Christchurch, I wanted to be close to the, the hub of agriculture in New Zealand in Lincoln, which has the headquarters of most of our largest companies, our Crown Research Institutes, our Lincoln University, um, mm-hmm. all here. So uh, that I was on the doorstep of communicating out and extending science. And so majority of my clients are science and research organizations that traditionally like to see communication successes publishing in a scientific journal job done move on to the next so by having a podcast and a video podcasting studio here I've made it more encouraging for them to come in and record scientists in a more bite-sized manner and in a medium like podcasting that farmers love. Farmers love, love, love podcasting because it's the one media they can consume whilst continuously working. Oh, I have course. a farmer that said to me, he Bluetooths my show from his smartwatch to his hearing aid and he carries on <laughs> drafting news in the yards. So Amazing. farmers are not short on technology when they've got a value proposition like that behind it. And to consume the amount of information you need as a farmer across all different topics is huge. So I just wanted to break it down and put it out there in a more palatable way. I'd like to ask one final question of you, Sarah, and it's back to those uh, general questions that uh, I started this episode with. What one piece of advice would you give to a newcomer to New Zealand who has just arrived and is planning to make a life here? Be open-minded in how much New Zealand has changed from when you left. I mean, I think that would be probably a given. 
but at the same time never underestimate how much value you're bringing back to this country from your experience internationally and what that can mean for the growth of all of our industries. Many thanks to Sarah Perriam. You can find the Sarah's Country podcast by searching on your favourite podcast platform. Sarah's also on social media. Just search for her on Twitter and Instagram or look for the Sarah's Country page on Facebook. In the next episode, my guest has, like me, recently been through MIQ. But in her case, it was due to returning from the Olympic Games in Tokyo. What Kind of Country was written, presented and edited by me, Victoria Meakin. My producer in Christchurch is Bridget de Goldie, and our original music was written and performed in New Zealand by Corey Borzicker. What Kind of Country is a Broaden Up production. Mm-hmm.